What's up, everyone? Welcome to Overexposed. I'm Philip Lemons. I'm an amateur photographer and the community manager at Schatzer, a global network of photographers and a responsive image library. This week, I spoke with Stanley Sigalov, a photographer and owner of Axe & Hammer, a sustainable print business. Be sure to stay tuned until the end of the episode to get a discount code that can be used on axeandhammer.co. Hope you guys enjoy. So now we're actually recording. And I'm that, should keep... be, that should be the intro to, think... to the podcast. <laughs> I think it actually will be. Um, so where do you want so to now, now, now we're beer deep. Now we're looser anyways. Now I think it's, it's going to be it's a warm up. Warm Take up. two. Exactly. Take two. So talk to me a little bit, Stanley, about um, one of the lessons that you've learned starting Axe and Hammer, your print business or as a photographer transitioning from amateur to a more professional photographer, um, what's the lesson that's really stuck out to you? Yeah. Uh, this might seem pretty simplistic, but, but I think it's really relevant. I think the biggest lesson that I've learned both in photography and business is that nothing happens passively. Uh, as you get into something that can provide for you or can become a career or can become scalable, it sort of needs consistent action, consistent babysitting. Um, to put it in another way, you don't get results or you don't get success by initiating something and, and hoping that it snowballs into into something successful. Um, you don't become a successful photographer by carrying around a camera. And I think that in our in our day, when we see these finished products constantly around us, we see these successful businesses, we see these successful photographers. Uh, we don't necessarily connect the dots and we don't think about what it took to get to that to that place. And so we automatically think, well, if I pick up a camera and start shooting or if I buy a domain and create a website on Squarespace and start selling a product, it's automatically going to blossom over time into a successful product or a successful career. But in reality, it takes it takes pushing in a certain direction every single day. It requires re-evalu- reevaluating excuse me, constantly. And those are things that people don't think about. So they, they assume that once they pick a path, the path will take them in a certain location. Uh, but what I've learned is it's grit that pushes you through every single day and not necessarily a passive stance on all of this. So how do you, um, how do you make sure that you don't become passive then? What's, the, what's that process of self-reflection like so that you know, you, you don't turn on autopilot and you're continuing to be the driving force is, you know, that it's kind of difficult. I know it's a simple question, but it's kind of difficult to not turn on autopilot and just be, you know, unconsciously plugging along, whether that's in business or life. So how do you keep yourself on track? How do you keep that grit? Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. Uh, the method to this is, understanding what your success is you can be on autopilot for years and not understand that you have been on autopilot yeah right if you're putting several hours of work into let's say a business or an online business and it's it's sort of growing but it's not really growing that could be success in your eyes that autopilot could be seen as success you can fool yourself mm-hmm. um, so to answer your question how do you keep yourself from from letting things stay stable and letting things go on autopilot is you have to set goals and you have to revisit your goals very often to know that whether you're on track or not. 
uh, if you're going an online business, you have to set goals for a year or two out and to know where you've, whether you've hit your mark or not. Because uh, otherwise, you know, you can have this business hanging around uh, and you would have no idea whether it's, it's doing well or it's doing poorly. So that's a good point. Having those goals, maintaining them and being honest about it with yourself about meeting them. So starting Axe and Hammer was a pretty big goal. What made you decide to make the jump into the the print business the, to, to develop a print marketplace um, as a photographer? Yeah, so there's there's sort of two sides to, to this. The first one is organic, uh, sort of natural forces that push me into this field or this industry. Uh, the second one is very conscious, and I'll start with the organic. Organically, as a photographer, uh, I was sort of displaying my work on Instagram and, and yada yada, the typical thing that a photographer does when they yep. carry around a camera. And I started getting approached by people around me asking for prints. Um, a lot of people around me were buying new homes or moving into new apartments, had a bunch of wall space, and they wanted something more intimate or authentic than going to you know, a store and buying a print that other people could buy. And so they were looking at my portfolio saying, oh my God, I love that print of Telluride. I've been going to Telluride my whole childhood. That I really want this. And I don't want to you know, order one from somebody I don't know because if I have something on the wall that's yours, I can say, oh, my buddy did that. That'd be awesome. And so I, I hadn't thought of it that way. And I said, oh, well, all right, I'll figure out how to get a print for you. Uh, and so I started researching the whole you know, printing industry. How are photographers getting good quality prints? How are they getting them to their customers? Uh, so I did, did all this research and I sold a couple of prints and I started thinking, well, if I'm having this, you know, if I'm having this realization that I uh, could sell my prints to people that want them, more photographers have to be going through this as well. So I started approaching other photographers, you know, photographers that were way more successful than me, that had way better imagery than me. And I noticed that almost everyone was having the same problem. It's like if a photographer could sell prints, they would. It's such a, it's such like a, an incredible pleasure to sell a print. Uh, it's, it sort of brings joy that somebody would want your artwork or your work to hang in their walls, you know, physically. Yeah, absolutely. And so I started approaching other photographers and noticed that there was, there was both a demand for printed work from people that were, that were trying to decorate their homes in a more sensible or more intimate way. Uh, but also all these photographers that are struggling to make ends meet, um, and had this desire to sell prints, but had no idea how to do it. Uh, and had no idea, you know, where to find the customer. Uh, and so, the idea behind Axe and Hammer initially was, well, let's connect those two fields. Let's let's get photographers that want to sell prints that have great work uh, to people that admire those prints already and get the work on the walls. Um, and we noticed that sort of the success was coming from people that had been following these photographers for an extended period of time and had an intimate relationship with them already, even if the photographer didn't know it. Like I could be following this photographer on Instagram for years yep. um, and admire the work and be excited when something when something new pops up on their feed. Uh, but I hadn't really thought about decorating my home with something like that. And actually supporting them. Yeah, exactly. And so we we sort of noticed that there was a way to, to bring authentic, intimate work into people's homes. Um, and sustain the photographers to create more of that work at the same time. And so that was our big goal is how do we connect the photographers to their audience, not to the audience, but to their audience specifically uh, to get, you know, beautiful work on their walls. And I know another piece of what you guys do outside of the fantastic prints, um, which we'll get to in a second, is the environmentally friendly 
aspect of the prints? Where where did that come from? Did you notice that when you were trying to source prints for your own work that it was kind of a nightmare to figure out what was this, where this dye and all this stuff was coming from, or where where did that develop? Absolutely. Well, it developed initially when we started looking at the business and how do we print. There are dozens of vendors out there to get your to get your prints printed. Yeah, uh, and we started. The, the the process in choosing one of them to start a relationship with and we thought well the majority of our prints are nature-based how i mean who the hell would we be to print <laughs> nature images without thinking about nature itself uh-huh. when we were doing this and so it, it it felt only natural that we did it in the most sustainable way that we could obviously the process is imperfect uh dyes aren't necessarily you know healthy to anything in nature yeah uh but we we really really pushed to get as close as possible to a sustainable process we could. We interviewed, uh, I mean, a dozen vendors across the states to see what type of environmental efforts they had. Um, it, it felt only natural that our customers could buy a print without thinking too much about the consequences or the negative consequences. Not having to worry about that. Exactly, and and our kind of philosophy in it is, uh, who are we to sell a product? that that in the end aids to you know the images not being able to be captured many years down the line like we can't sell a product that that damages the nature that's being photographed in our product right Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we looked at it from two ways we looked at both the production process can we choose the vendor uh, that produces the most sustainably um, the most environmentally sustainable print but also from the give back process of, let's say, uh, you know, we can't have a giant effect on on global warming, or we can't have a giant effect on the environment just through the decor industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can we give back? And so that was our uh, thought process to joining One Percent for the Planet, uh, which is an organization that Patagonia belongs to, that essentially take one percent of revenues from all companies and funnel it back into environmental nonprofits of your choice. And so we sort of approach it from those two sides to try to make our business as sustainable as possible. That's awesome. So how many photographers do you guys have on your roster now? We have about 40. That's, uh, a, that's a lot. I mean, yeah. if you think about all their work, it's, yeah. it's a good number. So what? I think this will resonate with a lot of photographers and really anyone that's started something of their own. Talk to me a little bit about the, the highs and the lows of yeah. starting your own <laughs> business or your own, you know, deciding, oh, I'm going to take on this photography thing head on. The, you know, the entrepreneurial highs and lows are, can be devastating. How do you manage yeah. that? Well, first and foremost, there are a lot of them, Yeah, right? <laughs> Mostly lows. <laughs> One day you're on the top of the world and the next day you're like, I'm an idiot for even trying this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like one day you're on top of the world the next month is yeah, that's <laughs> the latter. Yeah. Uh, you you experience them and there's no way around it. No yeah. matter how successful your business is, even let's say you're growing at, at a rate that's beyond your dreams, you're still going to hit those low points because the low points are all based on expectation. Um, the way we've sort of learned to manage them is we've noticed that the, high, the highs and lows uh, permeate relationships. I mean, you go through highs and lows together as a team. Some of the highs are personal or some of the highs and lows are personal where you experience them because of your own goals and how they're interacting with the business. And some of them are 
uh, I mean, team-based where something ha- will happen in the business where that you can't control and all of a sudden the whole team has to scramble or the whole team has to see the business decline because of this factor. Uh, and we've had, we've implemented sort of this process within our team of checking up every time that there is a low and what can we do for each other or can we at least relate upon it? Mm-hmm. Can we at least say that we're all in the low and then have a beer over it and yeah. and try to accept that it's a low and that we can get through it? Or else the sort of the the... The downside here is it's really easy to bail out during a low. Uh, what proves your worth within a business is can you hit a low, consciously understand that it's a low, and then see if you can hit a high again because nobody exits a business on a high. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, It's valuable to keep in mind no matter what you're doing because it's those low points are the ones where you just kind of have to put your head down and grind it out or relate to your team so that you're not the only one that's like, man, this, yeah. this sucks. <laughs> we all feel like idiots. So yeah. If there's anything, that, if there's anything about suffering, it's always easier it's to swallow together, together, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, on a, on a lighter topic, what, what to you, I'd be interested both on your personal perspective and from a perspective of what actually sells. But what do you think makes a fantastic print? Like what about an image is something that people are either you are like, man, I want to have this on my yeah. wall yeah, or the population at large wants to have that on their wall. Yeah. And do those match up? Do what does what you like match what the general population likes or how does talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And there, there are a few factors that I can speak to. Uh, on what I believe makes a print great mm-hmm. or what I've seen. But all of this is extremely subjective. Yeah. And some of the images that you'll find on our site, uh, I was adamant about taking down. And then I'll interview a couple of people and they're like, that's the best print on your website. And I'm like, well, I, I guess I should listen to the public, right? Um, but the, the things that I think that make good print are, are first of all, the physical manifestations. Um, I mean, you'll notice that if you hold two prints together, right, same image, Yep. you'll notice a difference in the production quality depending on where you get it. Uh, it's it's easy to make a print. It's easy to go to Costco and print one out. Uh, it's easy to sort of hang something up on your wall. Yep. Uh, it's, it's hard to find something consistently great. Uh, that was part of our interview process with vendors. We go through the same type of vendors that uh, a gallery would go through if they're starting a, you know, a physical gallery yep. for a big name artist. Uh, and we sort of back our product where if our customers get something that's remotely under their expectations, then we send it back and, and try to reprint it or at least give a refund. The other factors are, are the sort of the intimate connection that you have in it with an image. Uh, this is where I think that our business stands out above other decor firms is if you walk into a gallery and you're sort of looking at images the images might be fantastic. You might see something, you know, from the Faroe Islands that is just stunning. Yeah. Uh, but you might not have a personal connection with that image. And so if you put it on your wall, it might look great. You might get compliments on it. But you don't necessarily have an emotional attachment to it. And so my my philosophy is I think the most important thing within a print is that you have some sort of connection to it. Some sort of emotional connection that you, when you look at that print, you feel something beyond my living room looks great. You want right? people to ask you about that photo and why it's hanging on your wall. Absolutely. And you want to feel something. If you, and it's you not know. the general one from 
Walmart that was in the frame <laughs> that went up there. Yep. Yep. It's not that stock image of a family having fun <laughs> in a field. If it's, you know, you've had it like, imagine you've had a long week. You're exhausted. It's Friday morning. You're finally getting through it. And you're having a cup of coffee in your kitchen. What is, what is it that you're going to feel when you look at that print at that exact moment, uh, your moment of vulnerability? What are the emotions that are going to go through you when you see that image? Is it going to be, you know, is it going to be emptiness or is it going to be some sort of connection with the freedom that you've desired? Is it going to be some sort of travel bug that you're trying or travel itch that you're trying to itch? Is it going to be something beyond just seeing a physical object or an image? Um, and then the third thing is, is I think important when you're looking at a gallery is, is it just good old fashioned photography? Yeah. Uh, in the world of Instagram and in the world of, you know, thousands of images everywhere, it's hard to confuse artwork with just, you know, high satur- highly saturated you know, images that look good for a second. You know, the, the way I look at it is it's like, are you buying are you buying a salad or are you buying a candy bar? Is the image that you're looking for at a candy bar where it gives you this quick boost of, mm-hmm. you know, emotional attachment and then it's just an, uh, then it's an ordinary image? Or are you getting something that's going to be fulfilling over long over the long term? Uh, and really stand out to you over a year, over a decade. Uh, can you give it to your kids eventually when they move into their house? And so that's the nice part about having an online gallery is we can have a team to curate the work and we can say, this is a good image. This is subpar. And we can differentiate the two and only bring the good images to you. Absolutely. That's, you know, it's that the, the print that I have from you guys, um, the metal print is uh I, I can't remember the photographer's name but it's of the lone buffalo in the field yeah um chase burnett it, yes chase burnett and yeah. i i love that photo just because you know being in a startup myself it's like speaking of the entrepreneurial highs and lows yeah the lows kind of feel like your team is a lone buffalo standing in the snowstorm <laughs> in yeah. the middle of wyoming yeah. alone and so i was like man that photo is like I love it because of that. Even though you don't love the low, you know, but it's like, it's a representation of like the challenge. Can you brave the storm? Exactly. And so having that connection with that photo is, is something special. And that's one of the beautiful things about a lot of the work that you guys curate is that people can find that connection, whether it's with a place or the feeling of the image. Um, and in my opinion, that's something worth buying, but yeah, Hopefully the public will come around on that and start spending more money and don't let friends hang generic wall art. (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. And for the record, uh, that's, I think that's the one image that's a specific image that I did not want on the site. I was going to ask, I kind of knew, I knew it when you said it, I was like, I have, I would bet Stanley a beer right now that he didn't want that Buffalo photo on the site because at first I, I, I totally know what you're saying about it. Yeah. But it just evoked an emotional response in me. Yeah. Um, and but it, if I was like judging the photo without that context, it's a very different photo. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 funny that you say that because I knew you were gonna, <laughs> I yeah. knew you were gonna say that. And it, I think I think I only came around to it when when the when the fourth or fifth order came in for it. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, it's, it's true. People like this print. Mm-hmm. Right? And before that, I. I sort of solid is so different from the rest of our collection that I didn't really think that I had a place there. But 
I guess this speaks volumes to listening to your customers because not, you know, two people don't have the same art taste in the world. And it's, it's a fine balance too, between listening to your customers and also continuing to strive down a path that might be different. Yeah. Um, and balancing those two things so that you're not just ignoring feedback. But at the same time, if you're doing something that's unique, you're going to experience resistance. Yeah. And not conflating genuine feedback with resistance, um, yeah. I think is important because it's easy to just let the resistance bog you down and quit um, or to completely ignore the feedback and think that, you know, you're going to, you're a genius and your idea is perfect <laughs> yeah. as is and yeah. no one else has thought of it, but you're going to make it work. Yeah. And, and that speaks to modern business practices yeah. in general is how do you, how do you listen to your customer? Your whole business is built upon the foundation of your customer and how do you give them opportunity to speak? And something that we've done uh, almost consistently is we've given the opportunity to speak or given our customers the opportunity to speak their minds about what we're doing uh, and rewarded them for it. You know, I, I'm the type of guy, I was in the product world for a long time. I see something wrong in a website or in a product. I instantly send an email to the team and say, you know, what are you guys doing? Uh, and it's, it surprises me by how often I'm not rewarded for it. Now mm -hmm. I don't have the expectation. I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound spoiled. I don't have the expectation that somebody's gonna uh, that somebody's gonna reward me, but it's sort of surprising that you submit the, that, you that submit no one feedback. appreciates that. Feedback, yeah, and they're just know. like thanks, silence, right? Uh, and, so, and something that I'm adamant about in our business is that every time somebody gives a, a piece of feedback, every time somebody fills out a, a survey that we send about our products or tells us what they would like to see more on the website, uh, we almost automatically provide some type of discount uh, or some type of free print because I think it's well deserved. If you have an investment. In our business, uh, we should have an investment in our customer. Absolutely, yeah. That's I think that's great. So you've um, you've traveled with your partner for the last two ish years. Is that right? Yeah, two years, pretty extensively. You have you've been you haven't really had a home base for two years. Yeah, and you might laugh when I say this, but especially with a subset of photographers. You're kind of living their dream. <laughs> yeah, you're you're traveling. You're you know not tied to one location. Um, you're managing your business remotely. You're doing work wherever you go. Um, it's the nomad life. Yeah, <laughs> talk to me a bit about how you were able to achieve able to achieve that nomad life. Because um, for many people, I think it seems extremely unattainable. Yeah, I think. It just just for context, I think over the last 18 months or so, we've gone to or we've lived in over 20 or 30 cities acro across, uh, I think, 12 or 13 countries. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's been it's been true hashtag nomad life. Or yeah. Whatever you <laughs> call it. Uh, I, I'll, I'll approach this from from two sides. The first one is it's a lot more attainable than people think. Uh huh. Uh, the second one is it's a lot more difficult than people <laughs> think, right? Um, I think that people have this misconstrued uh, perspective that traveling and working or traveling in general is this thing reserved for people with old money and trust funds mm -hmm. and people have that sold their business for millions of dollars and now they can finally have this escape. Uh, that's completely not true. 
uh, and I'll, I'll back this in a little bit, but, but my life traveling overall on average per month has been much cheaper than living in Denver. Really? Yeah. Uh, that's the first thing. And I'm, and I track my finances to the penny. Uh, but the second thing is, is that there are a lot of factors that you don't think about during the travel lifestyle, uh, that are very negative and not a lot of them have anything to do with, uh, logistical challenges or cost or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but really, uh, discipline and like general loneliness, you know, how do you feel in, in, in three or four months of travel? Um, after that, are you still enjoying, you know, your, your traveling? Um, so first of all, my advice is that anybody who has any sort of desire to travel the world, especially while working, seriously look into it. Uh, it's not as difficult as people think. Um, especially with all the resources that are out there nowadays uh, for getting clients as a freelancer, for finding living accommodations uh, while you're traveling. A small example of this is when we were traveling through Colombia, we were able to find uh, co-working spaces where we could live really, really easily on Airbnb mm -hmm. that costs less than the average long-term rent per night in Cap Hill mm -hmm. in Denver. And so we were finding these places for 10, 12 bucks a night uh, with you know great internet speeds and a nice area in, in Medellin, Colombia, and being like, well, we can easily spend a few weeks here and work the nomad life and it would literally save us money. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the same thing goes for work. It's easy to find work nowadays, in my opinion, uh, that is completely remote, even if you don't own a business or even if you're yeah. not part of an employer that you know, has embraced. The it might be easier work, if you don't own a business. Absolutely. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you, if you've been in the working world for, for any amount of time, yeah. or even if you haven't, if you have any sort of uh, desire to work remotely, you can discover skills that are marketable online. Um, Google how to make money remotely and you will absolutely find something that can be sustainable. Now, the whole other side of this is that it is difficult from a personal perspective. Uh, living out of a duffel bag inherently gets uh, nauseating after a few months. I think that on our last trip, we were in South America for a little over two months. And I think week four or five, we were like, oh, my God, if we can't, if we can't find a good latte in the next few days, then we're going <laughs> to book Get tickets a, yeah. back to the States, right? Uh, I know it seems silly, but you you sort of start missing the comfort. And so my advice to anybody who's willing to do this, do the research. Don't be scared to pull the trigger to go somewhere. Uh, test the waters. You know, go on a, go on a trip for four or five days uh, with the permission of your manager and see if you can just work remotely in those four or five days and then adventure in the evenings or whatever. Uh, Columbia is a great place to do that. Flights are cheap. The, the environment over there is very conducive to that. Uh, and then prove your worth and start doing that more and more long-term or, you know, pull the trigger, make the dive and start marketing your skills on those websites, start a business, um, and go travel. How did, um, extensively traveling affect you as a photographer? Um, and I think that's partly why it's so many photographers dreams to go travel extensively is because if you're in a beautiful place, then some might believe the images kind of make themselves. Yeah. Did you find that 
your interest in photography grew while you were traveling or the fact that you were taking, you know, picture after picture of gorgeous blue water got old (laughs) after a couple months? Yeah, uh, it did get old, first of all. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It made me grow as a photographer. I think that, again, to, to an early point that we talked about, you can't do any of this passively. You can't say that you're going to get a good images because you're bringing a camera to South America. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. If you do want to be a travel photographer and if you want to get images that you can be proud of after afterwards, after your travels, you have to be very intentional about the types of images that you're capturing while you're traveling. Uh, yeah, that means doing the, the, the awful things like creating a shot list before you go on a hike, right? Uh, it means going into a city and figuring out exactly what you're going to photograph at the exact time uh, from which angles, right? Um, a good example, you know, the, where I failed in this is towards the end of, of our trip, we were sort of getting tired and we had booked a plan, uh, booked a trip to the jungle. It was like this, I really wanted to visit the Amazon. We booked this guided trip where we were going to canoe and and do all this exciting stuff. And at that point, I was sort of burnt out and I was like, oh, I'll bring my camera along and I'll see if I can get some decent images, you know, in, in this boring place called the Amazon rainforest. And afterwards, I felt so much regret because I wasn't actively taking the shots that I thought that I was going to be taking before the trip. And I came out and, and I don't think I've got any great images from that opportunity where I could have gotten these, you know, magazine worthy, beautiful uh, photographs. And it's this, it's this discipline of intentionality where you're constantly pushing yourself to get great images, even if you're in, in vacation mode. Yeah. Uh, and that's difficult. And it, and it takes sitting down every morning over breakfast and saying, what am I going to accomplish today? Uh, it, this bleeds over into the business world as well. It's easy to bring your computer to, uh, to travel and live this nomad life. It's hard to sit down for 68 hours a day in paradise and, and actually work. do, you know, do work. Um, and so it's, it's again, it's discipline of intentionality. Got to do it right. What does your girlfriend think about you making a shot list for a hike? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you have these 12 shots you need to get. And she's just like, I just want to go for a hike. <laughs> yeah, I swear. I think our, our biggest fights you know outside of the u.s and inside of the u.s have been have been her telling me to put my camera away um and it's yeah it's difficult it's it's tough conversations where we'll be well it's an intrusive thing when you're actually taking photographs it's not like a subtle yeah thing. even yeah, if like yeah. your shutter isn't making a lot of noise it's still like people are like what are you doing whether you're in a restaurant <laughs> or you're on a hike like it becomes a whole thing oh yeah and the worst isn't like a church you know uh, churches are beautiful you can't not photograph them but there's a fine line between taking out your iphone and snapping a few pics and standing there for 45 minutes with the dslr getting the right (laughs) angle uh and and i think that we've sort of at least with my girlfriend and i we've come to a good rhythm where uh, I give her a fair warning where these are the places where I'm going to get stuck. Yeah. Like leave me, <laughs> go get a coffee, go have lunch. I will, I will find you a little mm-hmm. later and, and sort of gotten into a good stride, but managing those expectations of, you know, I, I know that we're going to be in a pretty part of town. 
I know that I want a good image that I can flaunt afterwards. It might take sitting there for two hours waiting for the right light. Uh, and, and bearing that is a little tough with a partner. Yeah, absolutely. So outside of the photography aspect, was there anything that really stuck out or changed you after two years of traveling? Seeing so many different parts of the world that people want to see, seeing, experiencing all those cultures. Was there yeah, one takeaway? Yeah, the, the big takeaway, well, a few big takeaways is, you, first of all, you learn how to miss things back home. Right. Well, you, you, all those things you, most people take for granted every day, you know, their friend base, their comfort with the situation around them. Uh, you learn how to appreciate those things once you get a little settled down. Um, in my position right now, I think it's been, it's been over four months since I've been in one physical location for more than 10 days. Right. Uh, and so right now the biggest priority for me is, is, being comfortable in my surroundings and finding people that I'm comfortable with. And that's difficult after that much time. The second thing is, is you sort of learn the things that you really want to see when you travel somewhere. Uh, when you look at travel magazines or travel websites about a certain location and you look at the things that they're flaunting or that they make look desirable, those aren't necessarily the things that you truly want to see when you're in a place. And I've sort of learned that when I go to a location, which aspects am I ignoring and which things am I really going for? Uh, For me personally and and for my girlfriend as well, it's if we go to a place, what are the most beautiful, you know, isolated, natural uh, locations that we want to see? You know, what is that hidden waterfall that we want to hike eight miles to that we're not going to see anywhere else? in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is that, you know, ruin that we're going to see? Uh, it's not, you know, that coffee shop or that bar or that interesting, you know, hostel or whatever it is. You sort of start cutting through what it is that you want to see. And if you don't do that cut through, if you don't, if you don't figure out what it is that you're there to see, then a lot of places start blending in together. And if places start blending together, then why are you traveling in the you first place? might as well place? be at home. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so coming to that learning is really important. And so now when we travel, even when we're settled down, when we when we will travel, we'll know why we're going somewhere and what we're going to get from it. That's that's interesting. That's it's almost like an appreciation for what's at home. Yeah. An appreciation for what's home about other places. What's that unique? What's you know, if you are from Denver, what's that thing in Colombia? That if you, that is really exceptional about Colombia. Yeah. Um, and are you, are you separating the means from the ends? Is, is your, uh, is your end to travel? And I don't think most people realize that travel in itself isn't an end. It's a mean to see something. Yeah. Um, and so once you figure out what it is that you want to see, then you start to start analyzing, of, is certain travel worth it? It's, it's funny that you say that because one of the things that I've learned over the past six months is to be acutely aware of what actually motivates me yeah. versus what I'm saying motivates me. <laughs> yeah. Um, in this example, is my motivation just to go somewhere else or is my motivation to actually experience somewhere else? And because I think, it, you know, being satisfied with life 
a big part of that is actually understanding what motivates you. Yeah. And if you're kidding yourself and you're kidding others about what actually motivates you, it's not going to work out. Um, and, yeah. And I, I totally agree. And it's, it's really easy to, uh, it's really easy to forget which one's which. Yeah. Uh, a small example is everyone's obsessed with air travel nowadays. Everyone's uh-huh. obsessed with flying. But if you step back for a second, flying is miserable. <laughs> There's no way around it. Yeah. You, you're no, sitting in a stiff seat for hours on oh, end yeah. with nothing to do. You know, if you're if you're obsessed with travel, then go sit in like a hotel lobby for eight hours and pretend that you're on a plane. Uh-huh. Uh and so you can't you can't think of travel as the as the action of getting somewhere. You have to think of travel as seeing something that you wouldn't be able to see without the air travel, without the sacrifice of air travel. Um and that's really important to understand what what are the things that actually motivate you, as you said? That kind of opens up a whole different aspect of what aren't you seeing in your own community. Exactly. That you don't necessarily need a plane to go <laughs> yeah. experience. Exactly. It all comes back to uh, it all comes back to what is it that you actually enjoy. Yeah. Now, I don't want to down talk travel in general. I think that travel, especially cross culturally, especially to other nations makes people more acutely aware of themselves and of their culture and of, mm-hmm. of life in general. Um, going to South America was an extremely humbling experience. You appreciate your own life more. Uh, you appreciate life in general. You know, you go to a country which isn't uh, necessarily as economically well, uh, it doesn't have the same economical well-being as the States, and yet people are equally, if not more happy yep. than you, right? You start appreciating deeper things in life. But that being said, you talk to a local in South America and they, they ask you, you know, what you're doing in South America. And you say you're looking at certain things or you're trying certain things. And then they say, well, do you not have those things back in the States? And <laughs> you say, well, we do, but, <laughs> but, it's different. You know, <laughs> but it's different or we want to see in the States. Yeah. And you sort of come to this awareness of, of enjoying the things that are right in front of you. Yeah. And maybe... You know, maybe travel is the thing that is necessary to bring those things out yep. in you. Uh, and and I guess circling back to your initial question is what what have I learned from eighteen months, you know, twenty months of consistent traveling? Is you learn rather quickly what is it that you truly enjoy, uh, and you learn appreciation for seeking those things out consciously around you. Um, and sort of self-discovery, I guess. That's great. Um, so I'm, I'm curious for your perspective, given that you run a business that's acutely dependent on photography um, and that you're a photographer yourself, what do you think is the state of photography right now? And where do you think it's going? Where do you think this post Instagram photography world is headed. Do you think that, you know, maybe prints will go the way of the vinyl and become really popular again? Um, what's, what are you expecting as a photographer? It's a good question. I think that we're leading into a more positive world of, of discoverability. If you look at the photography world pre Instagram, uh, pre Squarespace, right? Pre online marketing, it's easy to see that there 
there are higher barriers to entry into professional photography. And by professional, I mean being able to sustain yourself through photography or being able to call it something more than a hobby. Now we're in the space where you, if you have any sort of talent or if you have any sort of desire to become a professional photographer, you have all these tools at your disposal to make that happen. Yep. You can create an Instagram portfolio that attracts clients or that attracts viewers without any effort. Uh, you sort of start the the process of weeding the 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 subpar photographers from the exceptional photographers is no longer present. Now you have all this technology that allows anybody with talent to showcase their talent. In my perspective, this is sort of the golden age of photography. We've entered a place where, where you can flaunt your photography skills without having an agent, without having these constraints. Without spending $7,000 on gear. Exactly, exactly. And, and cameras are sort of moving in the same direction yep. too. You look at the mirrorless market, you look at the... Yeah, that's what I just got. I just got a Fuji mirrorless Absolutely. XT2. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, the majority of work I shoot nowadays is, is the camera smaller than the first camera that I ever had. Yeah. Um, and cheaper, right? You can go on eBay and buy yourself a two $300 camera that gets you 99% of the results that the pros get. Lets uh, you learn. Exactly. Exactly. And so from both a personal portfolio and a business standpoint, um, this is the time to get into photography because there are so many opportunities to get discovered if you have talent. Uh, there are also so many resources to pick up on photography methods. You go on YouTube and you Google how to take a photograph and you'll get however many thousands of results of tutorials that yep. people have made, right? Excuse me. Uh, and so... From my perspective, although some people think that Instagram and, and social media has undermined photography, I sort of see it the other way. If, if you had some sort of desire to become a professional photographer, uh, do it now. Flaunt your work, practice, show it off, and things are bound to happen. That's great perspective. I, I love that too. I love the positive outlook because... Instagram and the social world has presented a lot of challenges, but at the same time, it's opening up the world of photography to a whole new audience and it's expanding the audience of people that would have ever looked at images, enjoyed images. You know, I had Angie Payne on the podcast and she learned to become a photographer with like an iPhone five <laughs> yeah. and she like spent so much time creating a beautiful image with the iPhone five that you would never know that she was just using a cell phone. And then she made the jump once she was ready. Um, but, you know, her barrier to entry was a cell phone. Exactly. So, and there's, exactly. there's something beautiful about that. Um, and there's something exciting about that too, because you're bound to see an explosion of creativity and new artists come exactly. up and, you know, really disrupt the space as a whole. And, um, move it forward. Yeah. So, and there are so many opportunities for photographers to, to make money off photography nowadays too. You know, you're not, you don't have to go to an agency or work for a newspaper to get your photography yep. published. And you look at shots or you look at the services that Hacks and Hammer provides, or you look at any stock, you know, photography yeah. outlet out there. Uh, you can, with a few clicks of a, a clicks of a mouse, um, you know, make photography your career. 
And if you are into wedding photography, it's easy to display a portfolio and advertise through Facebook yep. or whatever it is. Uh, everything is at the tip of your finger, uh, at the tips of your fingers now. You don't have to move to New York to become a professional photographer. Uh, I think that a lot of people, a lot of people undermine this. A lot of people don't think about the opportunities that exist uh, in the in the photography world. If I've learned anything, it's much less crowded than people think. People think that just because there are so many Instagram accounts and so much good photography that's out there, they're never going to be able to compete. Uh, this is simply not true. People are always looking for uh, brilliant imagery, and and if you can provide good imagery, there is a space for you. Absolutely. Image consumption has only increased and the number of photographers could still balloon and Absolutely. not quite meet the imagery needs. Absolutely. So uh, to wrap things up here, um, I like to finish things off by just uh, asking you, we steal this from pop culture happy hour, um, but what's making you happy this week? What's uh <laughs> doesn't have to be photography related, but what's uh, you know, what's making you happy? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> the hardest question of the podcast. <laughs> uh, you know, the, my friends are making me happy this week. And anyway, we've been out of the country for so long, just the two of us, my girlfriend and I, and we came back into uh, to Denver, where you know where we met, where we lived for a very for a very long period of time. Uh, it's nice to see everybody that we've missed um, and reconnect. That's what's making me happy this week. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, coming on. And um, everyone should absolutely check out Axe and Hammer. Is it just axeandhammer.com? Axeandhammer.co. Axeandhammer.co. Go check it out. Buy a print. um, Buy multiple prints. Are you guys still accepting photographers? Are you satisfied with your current capacity right now? Do you want people to apply? Uh, We would love some new applications. Uh, We have a collection swap coming up in okay. September, October. Uh, so that's a great opportunity for photographers to join for us to refresh our content. Uh, and then we'll also be giving a discount to any shots or listeners. So if you use the code shots or we'll give 10% off any Ooh, of our products sweet. on our site. We'll see how many people make it through to the end of the podcast, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> this so is your reward. Go, go check it out. Use the shots or promo code S H O T Z R. Um, and apply to be a photographer if you'd like to start selling some prints. But Stanley, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Thankfully, we recorded to the end this time, so that's <laughs> always a plus. Thanks for listening in. I had a great time chatting with Stanley. Please head over to axeandhammer.co, check out what they're up to, and buy a print. Don't forget to use Shotzer as the discount code. You can find them on Instagram at axeandhammer. And please rate and subscribe so that I can continue chatting with awesome folks like Stanley. Till next time.